Today's reading is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, which can be found on page 628 of your church Bibles. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked... Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Thank you, Luella. Let's uh, uh, pray and ask God to help us to grasp this passage. Father, please would you help us to uh, apply our minds to this. um, Help us to be wise as we do that. When we pray, Lord, you'd help us to uh, take this on board. We pray it might make a difference to our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. It was during the Great Depression in America in the 1920s when there was a man called uh, Yates. It's his surname. He owned a huge amount of land down south in Texas. And he raised sheep on it. A lot of sheep. But it didn't really pay very well. And uh, actually he lived in quite significant poverty. Both he and his wife and his children. And uh, he could barely raise enough for food and clothing for his family. And it was getting to the point where I was thinking, well, I'm going to have to sell up and go to the town and get some little job there or whatever it would be. But then one day he had a visit from an oil company. And they said to him, we think there may be oil on your land. Would you, would you let us drill on it? And Yates thought that's pretty unlikely, frankly. Uh, but anyway, why not? So they began drilling. And, uh, and then at a very shallow depth, they struck the largest depo- deposit of oil that's ever been found in North America. And uh, it's produced 80,000 barrels a day. And overnight, 
Yates became a multi-billionaire. Extraordinary. Actually, he'd been a billionaire ever since he had owned the land. He just didn't know it. And in the spiritual realm, if you are a Christian, you too are a billionaire, but maybe you just didn't know it. And you're a billionaire because God knows you and you know God. And as we turn to Psalm 139 today, we're going to see this relationship that exists between God and his people. We're going to see about the way uh, that God knows us. So we can genuinely say if we're Christians, actually, whoever you are, you can say this. God, you know me. You know me. So look at verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And uh, in many ways, um, the next, uh, the rest of the psalm unpacks that and applies that little but wonderful jewel to our lives. And uh, in some ways, <clears throat> I thought as I've been preparing this, Psalm 139 is so special and it's so wonderful that uh, <clears throat> I don't really want to speak of it. In fact, I'd much rather just read it and then sit down and let you ponder it. And think it and so on. One thing I'd love you to do is maybe later on today, just go home and read it again. Or maybe tonight. Or maybe every morning this week uh, to read this again and ponder it and let it sink in and pray it through. You know me. And it is that great central and wonderful fact of the Christian life that God knows us. It's a relationship with God where there is a knowledge of us where that's known and accepted and it's seen as a privilege and we know God. Now, of course, if you're not a Christian, God still knows you. But that can be, possibly should be, deeply uncomfortable. God who knows you inside out, who knows you, bit of a cliche, but better than you know yourself. The God who knows our habits, who knows our sins, who knows our hearts, who knows our minds, who knows our struggles, who knows our pride, who knows our idols, who knows our isolation and our want of nothing to do with him, perhaps. The one who knows our eternity. You know me. And that can be deeply uncomfortable. But for a Christian, look at verse 6, such knowledge is, well, I mean, too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It is extraordinary, and it is beyond my grasping, I think, really. But it brings confidence, and it brings humility, and it brings peace, and it brings security, and so much more. This is a truly wonderful psalm. But before we dig into it, something to say about interpretation. We know it's written here, it was written by David, King David. The one from whose family line Jesus was born. The one who was the great king, the archetypal king. The one who points forward to Jesus as the great, perfect king. The one who was the forerunner, the precursor of Jesus. And the way that the Bible works is that we read this and we're meant to ask what it meant for David way back then, 3,000 years ago. We're meant to ask that. But then we're also meant to go back and say, well, actually David was 
the forerunner of Jesus. So we're also meant to go back and ask ourselves what it meant for Jesus and what difference has made to Jesus' life. And we'll do that. And then we can begin to think how that will apply to our lives today. But you don't, I don't want us just to read Psalm 139 and say, that's on the Psalm, let's apply it to me straight away. Let's go back to what it meant in the first place and then apply it to our lives. And that's what we're going to try and do. This morning, And I think as we do this, we'll find it far richer and far more understandable and we'll get far more from it. And there are these four things I'd like us to do in response. Contemplate, calm as in a verb, calm down, just be calm before God. Celebrate and contend. So we'll look at those four things. The first one is just simply this, contemplate. And that's the first six verses. Now, think of David. Thinking this, realizing this, understanding this, writing it down. As someone said, perhaps the fullest treatment of God's omniscience, all-knowingness, in all of Scripture. You know me. And it's intensely personal. This is between David and God. This is just him. You know me. This is just him when it's When it's all stripped away. So take this as an example. Here's Prince Charles. He has many titles. Here are some of them. Heir apparent to the crown, his royal highness, Prince of Wales, we know that. Duke of Cornwall, Knight of the Garter. Colonel-in-chief of the Royal Regiment of Wales. Duke of Rothsay, Knight of the Thistle. Thistle, commander of the Royal Navy, great master of the Order of Bath, Earl of Chester, Earl of Carrick, Baron of Renfrew, Lord of the Isles, and great steward of Scotland. How about that? Now, I imagine if we met him, uh, we would address him as your Royal Highness, although if you're playing polo with him, you may just simply address him as Sir, because your Royal Highness is a bit of a mouthful when you're on a pony. Anyway, uh, the thing is, he doesn't know us. And I guess for the vast majority of us, we've never met him. Actually, I did for about two seconds once, but anyway, I'll tell you about that later. Anyway, um, but I suspect in private, William and Harry, who do know him, for whom he is their dad, I don't know what they would call him, Papa? Is it? Dad? Whatever. But I'm sure they don't call him our Earl, Duke, Your Royal Highness. Prince of Wales. No, they've got a personal relationship. It is personal, deeply personal. And here, King David, in this intimate personal relationship with God, and he's comfortable with it, and he's amazed by it, and he's thinking about it, he's contemplating it, and he loves it, and he adores this God, for whom uh, uh, he he is his life. And it's the comfort of being known, like Charles and William and Harry, it's the amazement of married couples where, you know, sometimes in marriage prep, I've, the groom has said to me something like this. Um, you know, I can't believe it, but I'm going to get married to this girl who knows all about me. And yet she still loves me. And that's what it's like with God. He knows all about us and he still loves us. So contemplate these things. Verse 1, you have searched, you know. Verse 2, you know, you perceive. Verse 3, you discern, you're familiar and so on. Lord, you know me. It's wonderful. It's truly wonderful. Now, what would have meant that meant for Jesus? Growing up as a little lad. 
coming to a realization of who he was and is. What it would have meant for Jesus going to Jerusalem with his family, being taught this psalm, learning it, and knowing it's about him. How would he have seen it? I think it's talking for Jesus about the closeness and the intensity of perfect relationships in the Trinity between Father and Son here in particular. I think that would have been Jesus' understanding as he read this, as he sung it. Maybe he has sung it as a family. As he learned it. And as he was nailed to the cross, and as he died for us, and the perfect relationship that is described here was fractured, what pain Jesus bore of a perfect relationship upon which the wrath of his father was poured as he died in our place. So that we might experience that perfect relationship ourselves. He gave it up that we might enjoy it. Contemplate. Not spend some time contemplating this relationship, how Jesus made this possible, and why not do that this week. The second thing here is uh, calm. Let's be calm about this. Now, look at verses 7 to 12. Now, some people would say, verses 7 to 12, are, are David trying to escape, trying to get away from God, running. I don't think that's the case at all. Of course, actually, it could well be the case if someone isn't a Christian. You can't escape from God. He will find you. It's like one of those horror movies where you're running from some kind of alien uh, and, and, you're, and, and, then, and then you're running, 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 you stop and you look around and he's in front of you. And then he strikes. For the unbeliever, these verses can be verses of horror. Verses 7 to 12, because you can't run from God. And if you're trying, you're best to pack up sooner rather than later. But for David, they're wonderful. Now, life was often hard for David. He had often had to flee from his enemies. He knew what it meant to be pursued. And he knew also that God was with him. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The answer to that is nowhere. And that's good news. And God's personal presence guarantees the king's safety. So you look at verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So even the darkest evil can't separate King David from the love of God. Now that is security. That means we can be calm, whatever. Eight o'clock this morning, our eight o'clock guys, one or two were saying, really quite concerned about coronavirus. Well, let's look at Psalm 139. 
And I know for older folks, for, for those of us here this morning who have pre-existing medical conditions, yeah, we can be quite concerned. But we have a great God who knows us and who is with us and nothing, nothing, nothing will separate us from him. For King David, these verses are verses of calm wonder. For Jesus, he would have known God's presence with him. He would have appreciated that more and more as he was growing up. And, uh, um, I mean, we, and we can see his teaching. It may be that today, this afternoon, tonight, sometime this week, you want to read through John 10 or John 14. And you can see the relationship of Jesus with his father. But then look to the cross and the abandonment of God, of his son. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Well, there was one place on earth for Jesus. On a Friday afternoon, outside Jerusalem, on the cross of Calvary, where he endured separation from his heavenly father, So that we may not. For us, let's pause and pray and thank Jesus that there was one point in time when verses 7 to 12 were not true of him. That they may be true for us for all eternity. Or for us, maybe you're in a a trough of sin and you think it doesn't really matter well God knows you can't hide we need to repent we need to change and for us if we're believers it means God is present with us whatever the circumstances even the most horrendous circumstances God will get us through because he's there with us have you ever heard of Anne Steele one of those people disaster after disaster and you wonder how they cope it was on her wedding day it's a marvellous day all the preparations had been made the guests were arriving the cake was made the reception was prepared but there was no bridegroom they were there in the church and they waited and they waited and they waited They sent out people to search, and they found him. He had been drowned on his way to church to get married to Anne. Tragic. Anne was a Christian, and some while later she wrote this hymn which includes this line, Father, whatever of earthly bliss thy sovereign will denies, accepted at thy throne of grace, let this petition rise. Give me a calm, a thankful heart from every murmur free. The blessings of thy grace impart and make me live to thee. So let's remember verses 7 to 12. And be calm. God's presence with his people. No panic. It's okay. We can be calm. 
Because at one point in history, God's presence was not with his son. That we might be with him and wait in calm for the day when we with him forever in heaven. Third, celebrate. Verses 13 to 18. Um, celebrate God our creator. There are, there are lots of creating words here. So look at verse 13, created, knit me together. Verse 14, made, that's in 15 as well. Verse 14, your works. Verse 15, woven together. And King David reflects on that now and he celebrates. And it's deep and personal and very intimate, isn't it? It's intricate, it's profound, it's inmost being of verse 13 here. It's, uh, it means the seat of our desires and our longings. And God knows and he's created us to be people with feelings and desires and longings. It's not just physical, but he's created the emotional you, the psychological you, the mental you. And David celebrates here in awe and wonder. And I'm sure Jesus would have done the same. He would have done the same as he sung this psalm. He would have praised God, the God of his own creation in Mary's womb. And his own growth from conception to embryo to unborn baby and so on. Now, we just need to be a bit careful here. Because we're not saying that Jesus is a created being. There are some heretics centuries ago used to talk, teach about Jesus. And they would say of Jesus, there was a time when he was not. That's wrong, that's nonsense, that's a heresy. Okay? Jesus existed for all eternity. He's the one through whom the universe was created, and we celebrate that. He is not a created being, but in Mary's womb, he took flesh. And he grew. And he and we celebrate that. He was fully human. He fully identified with us. And is able therefore to die for us. Because he was human. And take our place. That's a clear application of uh, these verses. Verses 13 to 17 here. Jesus was one of us. Emmanuel came to die for us. So how does that work out? We celebrate Jesus' body and therefore his death for us. We celebrate our own bodies. I was just, you know, early this morning as I was reading through this, looking at my hand and thinking, not a very special hand, but actually every single person's hand is quite extraordinarily special. The fact that you can do this, that's just amazing that you can do that. This is extraordinary. Praise God for your hands and every other, other part of your anatomy as well. It's, uh, I got a, Anna and I have got a friend who's um, uh, a surgeon. And uh, Steve used to say when he was operating from time to time, he would stop and just be amazed um, at the intricacy and the wonder of, of what he was dealing with, the human body. And also, we must say in Psalm 139, um, for us, has got very significant things to say about the start and the end of life and the sanctity of life. If you were speaking about that, I'm not particularly this morning, but this is one of the places you would go, verses 13 to 15. It talks to us about what's going on in a mother's womb from the moment of conception. It does speak to us, therefore, about things like abortion 
and morning after pills and embryo research. And verse 16 speaks to us about um, the end of life and suicide and palliative care and so on. Uh, and when it might be right to withdraw treatment. And those are huge areas. They're, they're, they're intimate. They're very, very personal and extremely, uh, well, very, very important. But then at times and places, very, very difficult as well. But when we look at these things, and when we see what our society is doing, it seems to me that Christians really ought to raise our game. I found out this week that in 2018, there were 205,000 abortions in the UK. Since 1967, the Abortion Act, there have been nearly 8 million. It's extraordinary, isn't it? But a starting point in verses 13 to 18 is for us to celebrate our wonderful creator, God. And it may be that you'd like to talk to someone about the things I've just touched on there. I'm deliberately not going there because this isn't the main thing of this psalm. But if it's raised something for you, do come and talk afterwards or come and pray with one of our prayer team down the frontier afterwards or turn to someone and say, can we just be quiet together for a moment before we go and have coffee at the end of the service? I'm very much aware these things can be very difficult. And then just one final thing, and just briefly, because time's just about up. Content. And verses 19 to 24. I don't know if you read verses 19 to 24 and you think, hmm, that's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Wouldn't it be so much better if these verses weren't in the Bible? Or weren't here, mucking up Psalm 139. They seem to be uncomfortable and inconvenient, but you can't just ignore them. Why did David write this? What's his situation? What's going on in his mind? I think we need to see this as zeal for God, not spite. I think we need to see this as the response of a passionate, loyal love for God, for God's king. And the king's enemies are God's enemies. Those who want to destroy King David were God's enemies. And if they persevere, then they must be destroyed. If you look at the history of it. And I think we can probably understand that. We could go into that a little bit more, but it, it is kind of a bit awkward, isn't it? But I think we have to understand that this comes from a zeal for God, an enthusiasm for God, a passion for God, a standing up for God. And then there is that quieter and more contemplative, or however you pronounce it, uh, ending of the king who loves his God. Look at verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How about Jesus? I think we go again to the cross. And what a wonder of sin it is that men should rail against so good a being as the Lord our God. That's what someone said. And at the cross... They didn't just rail against him, they crucified him. And the cross polarizes the universe. 
So you're either for him or against him. One or the other. God has enemies. And Jesus fought enemies of evil on the cross and won the greatest victory the universe has ever seen. So I think it actually says to us, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you on God's side? You can answer this question now. Are you on God's side or are you one of his enemies? Because that's the polarization that this actually brings. And if you're on God's side, are you going to contend for the king? Are you going to stand up and say, yes, actually, I am on the king's side. I am going to stand up. I am going to speak out. I am going to fight for him. Because these are sobering words. And as we read verses 19 to 24, as Chris Rash wrote in his commentary, only Jesus can finally lead his church in singing these sobering words. Only Jesus can finally lead his church in singing these sobering words. And when they are sung, then we want to ask our king to examine us, as he does in verses 23 and 24. Yeah, we must contend. Yes, we must stand up and be counted. Yes, we want to show people which side we're on in this polarized society. But in the end, we come to spiritual MOT. Lord, you know me. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting.